Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. Glad to see you all. There is every now and then a debate, discussion, a series of controversies, um, depending on your perspective, a cancer that spreads over the brotherhood. And it, it behooves uh, Bible believers, gospel preachers, sound congregations to push against the tide. It happens every generation or so, sometimes a few times a generation, but it happens. You, and I say you, I mean you're the everyday regular churchgoer. You have a nine-to-five job. You have your, your own responsibilities, your own lives and everything. Um, it's not really for you to keep up with the goings and the comings of the brotherhood. No one's expecting that. Preachers keep up with that because our friends are preachers, so we network and we talk to each other. We see what's going on in your area, what's going on in your congregation, and vice versa. And so we tend to get sometimes kind of um, an inside scoop. Uh, we'll, we'll hear things that may not be widely heard. This congregation over here is suddenly doing this that seemed unfathomable a decade ago. And we say, why, why is that possibly happening? I can't believe they're doing that. This congregation over here is, is suddenly allowing something that had hitherto never been allowed in sound congregations. And we think, oh, what, what on earth happened over there? What's going on over there? And then what ends up happening is what happens over there does not stay over there. Like a cancer, it spreads. And some other congregation nearby or maybe not nearby who wants to do the same thing but was not courageous enough to step out and say, this is what we believe forget the Bible, finally now gets the justification to do so because some other congregation decided just to throw out the book entirely and do whatever they wanted. And that gives the license and the allowance to some other church over here to say, well, we can do that too. Yeah, 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 we agree with them. All the homework and research that they supposedly did, we did too, and now we're going to do that. And like a cancer, it spreads. And this happens, again, every generation or so. And sometimes it ebbs and flows where there's a thing we think is dead and buried and it just like a zombie comes back to life and you have to fight the battle all over again. I'm sure with the, the cyclical nature of humanity and you know, that we keep repeating our same mistakes, that's the way history goes, we'll end up, whatever I'm talking about tonight, we'll be talking about 40 years from now, um, hopefully, and not just something that's 40 years worse, so that's probably more likely. So these things happen, we see them coming over the horizon, we see them coming down the pike. And it behooves gospel preachers and sound elderships and Bible-focused churches to be aware of the danger that's ahead and to fortify ourselves now so that we're not having to put out fires within the building, so that we're not having to put out fires within the membership when these things start creeping up in here. We want to be able to say, no, we are united. We know what the Bible teaches. We understand what the Bible says. So we're not even going to allow that doctrine, that cancer, to come into this place. I'm not making this building sacred. I just mean this is the place where we worship. This is where we are together. We're not going to allow that cancer to come into here and infect us as it has infected so many other places. It was last month, this time, first Sunday night of the month, I preached a sermon on uh, how the Bible authorizes, how the Bible gives its commands, how it does so through a specific direct command, how it does so through uh, examples, how it does so through implication. It's our job to infer uh, correct implications from what the Bible says. Using common sense, using simply the way language works, using what we understand by simple reasoning, we can easily understand. We can know what God expects of us. It was a very fundamental, simple kind of, as I said, foundation-laying sermon. That's what I said last month. And I said, now that we've laid that foundation, I'm going to build on it with two sermons. One is tonight, 
The other one is in two months from now. Not next month. That's, I have something special for you next month. But in uh, April, we'll get the other one of these two. But these are both foundations built on where we were last month. So if you weren't here last month, it's not like you're missing anything. It's just, do you believe the Bible came from God? All right, that's what we learned last month. And if the Bible came from God, we've got to do what it says and what it tells us to do and how it tells us not to do what not to do. That's basically the gist of last month. But once you lay that foundation, then you're in. Then you're committed. Once you make the decision, I'm going to do what the Bible says, I'm going to say what the Bible says, I'm going to not do what the Bible says not do, then whatever the Bible says, we must do. And whatever the Bible prohibits, we must also prohibit for ourselves and for those around us. That's for an eldership to shepherd a congregation in those prohibitions and those commandments. It's for each individual Christian to counsel themselves according to the Bible in those prohibitions and those commandments. It's for every gospel preacher to preach those prohibitions and those commandments. In turn, equally, all the same. We've laid the foundation. The Bible tells us what to do. But some people don't like to hear what the Bible says sometimes. Sometimes the Bible pushes against culture. In fact, sometimes culture is what's pushing against the Bible. And when culture pushes against the Bible, too many people are too weak, spaghetti-spined, cowards to stand up for what is right, and so they just fold like a cheap suit. They fold and they just do whatever culture says. But having this, the monochrome of a conscience still within them, they will try to justify they're doing what the Bible says not to do. Or they will try to justify not doing what the Bible says to do. And so they will twist and contort and manipulate Scripture and attack those who stand up to them for preaching what is right. Um, attack those who preach what is right for standing up to them uh, to try to justify biblically what they're doing so they can still feel good inside when they come to a worship house on Sunday morning without realizing that really all they're doing is they're just making themselves feel good on the way to damnation. That's just the reality of it. We've already laid this foundation. The Bible says what it says, and if it doesn't say it, then you don't do it. And if it says it, you must do it. That's it. Anything else is a bridge too far. We've laid that foundation, so I don't feel bad saying it. It's damnation. It is condemnation if you don't do what the Bible says, if you don't prohibit what the Bible prohibits. Now, I'm not breaking any news when I say this is a debate. This is a discussion. This is an argument. This is a subject matter that has spread like a cancer across the churches of Christ. Should women be allowed to preach, be allowed to teach over men? Should they be allowed to be elders and so forth? Should women have a role of leadership? We'll put it in that general way, that vague way. Should women be allowed to have a role of leadership in Christianity? in the churches of Christ, but I repeat myself. Should they or should they not? You can find many of our denominational friends who are way past this. They have moved on. They already have women priests. They have women pastors and so forth. They, they're on television and so forth, and they're just all over the place. Fine, they moved way past it. For a long time, our brotherhood was pretty united on this front. And actually, I was sitting in my office earlier today thinking about what are the doctrines that I could say without hesitation the whole brotherhood of the churches of Christ are still totally united on. And after I got past Jesus is the Son of God, it was hard to find another one. We tend to like arguing with each other, especially about things that don't matter. This one matters, and we'll see why in a little bit, because I'm going to give you book, chapter, and verse about what it says. But this is the debate. It did not start in Christianity. It did not start from someone who read their Bible someday, one day. It started in culture. 
and it has crept into religion, which is the opposite of how the world should work. And that's just how it is, but that's not how it should be. How it is, is religion is downstream of culture. That is not how it should be. Culture should be downstream of religion. And the fact that it's not is a failure on our part to be more outward with our faith. But that's a totally different subject, so let's not even go there. Should the churches of Christ have women leaders? I have three things to share with you this, this evening. The first are just some preliminary ideas. We need to lay a foundation for this. After that, I have two texts to consider with you. One from 1 Timothy, one from 1 Corinthians. And then after that, some lightning round questions and answers. And really, that's the bulk of the material. And when we get to that part, you may say, this, this sounds like, like just a bunch of straw man arguments. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. A straw man argument is when a person who hasn't done any research or any study or any work on his own but wants to sound smart will make up an argument Make up on their own and say, well, some people say this, but that's obviously ridiculous to make themselves seem like they've answered an argument when really nobody's actually saying that over there. They created that weak argument. They created that straw man just so they could easily tear it down. These are not going to be straw man arguments. These are going to be actual arguments that I had with a person last year with a young college lady, a young girl about to go into college. Um, in, in the middle of camp, she came because she'd used to come to camp, and then she quit coming for many years, and she showed up, and she sat down. It was the middle of the day. We weren't doing anything. We are playing cards, hanging out in the middle of the day. It's open for, like, Bible study. If you want Bible study, if you need rest in your cabin, whatever. So we were all just relaxing. I was sitting there playing cards, and here she comes, and she sits down at the table in front of me, and she said, I want to talk about women. All right. Well, I'm already married. That wasn't what she had in mind. She said, I want you to tell me what makes a leader a leader and who can be a leader in the church. So I'll open my Bible, and what I'm going to give you tonight is basically a one-sided version of what I had with her, a round-and-round, two-hour discussion on this subject. This is a needed topic because this is being talked about. This is being discussed, debated, and eventually allowed in more congregations, closer congregations that maybe you would be comfortable with. I would hope you wouldn't be comfortable with it. So we need to talk about this. First of all, Let's get some preliminary questions out of the way, of which there are three. They're all the same question. We're just going to put a little different modifier on each one of them. The basic question is this. Is there a difference between men and women? First of all, is there a biological difference between men and women? We have to address this because this is what we're talking about. If there is none, then the whole thing is, is moot anyway. Is there a biological difference? I don't want to run down. I don't want to chase the rabbit of... Another thing that's happening in culture right now. I think, I think, I think all my brethren at least are in agreement on this one, that there is a biological difference between men and women. I know you'll find uh, in a lot of circles in culture a completely different opinion on the subject that a man can be a woman, a woman can be a man, and that there's a difference between sex and gender, and that, you know, biologically you're a man, but your gender can be chosen to be a woman, or biologically you're a woman, but you can choose to be a man by your gender, or you can choose to be both and be a they, or you can choose to be none. There's all kinds of different, I think, I, I, I took a test just for, just for informational purposes, and there were 71 different options. I ended up being male, so, spoiler alert. But there were 70 other options that I could have landed on. I bet you within five years, that number will be a lot more than 70. Because I don't see the world getting its sanity back anytime soon. So, I don't want to chase that rabbit, but we have to at least start there. Is there a biological difference as God defines it between man and women? Yes. 
Genesis 1.27, when God made man and woman, he made a man and a woman, and male and female, he created them, a man and woman. A man he made a male, a woman he made a female. And the Bible nowhere else puts any distinction between man and male or woman and female. They are one and the same, man and male, woman and female. The idea of separating sex from gender is a wholly new psychosis and phenomenon. It is, it is not grounded in any sort of sociological or biological and certainly not biblical fact or reality. All right? And we should, no, I'm not, no, we're not chasing the rabbit. We're not chasing the rabbit. So, yes, Genesis 1.27 makes it very clear that when God made people, he made a man person and a female person who was a male person and a female person. To reemphasize that point, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, as Moses is giving the old law of Moses to the generation that's about to take the promised land among many things that he says he says it is forbidden in the law of Moses for a man to dress and act like a woman or for a woman to dress and act like a man now pause don't nobody get me there's no way I'm staying in this chair because I'm getting antsy I'll end up walking don't nobody say to me uh, well that's the old law that doesn't apply that doesn't count you can't use the old law you'll be a hypocrite I'm not trying to use the old law I'm not trying to bind a law on anybody I'm showing you a principle that God found that he applied to Israel back then and the principle is God sees a distinction between men and women and from that distinction that God saw he made a law for Israel and the law was that so yes, in the mind of God, ergo in the mind of God's children, there should be as well a distinction between men and women. Next question, is there a spiritual difference or distinction between men and women? No, there is no spiritual difference or distinction. But let me clarify what I mean because here's where someone will jump in and say, oh, but, but if there's no spiritual distinction, then here that what we do in this spiritual realm, what we do in this spiritual arena, if there's no distinction, then anybody should be able to do anything. But that's not what it means in Galatians 3.28, the verse on the screen behind me. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ. You're all, you're all Abraham's seed, you're all heirs according to the promise. You all get to receive the same spiritual inheritance that was promised to Abraham and his descendants to come. That's this, that inheritance being salvation itself. So it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a man or a woman, male or female. It doesn't matter if you're free or a slave. If whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your nationality is, whatever your race is, anybody can be a descendant of Abraham through Jesus Christ. Spiritually, God just sees his children. It, he doesn't see, well, I have a black child over here and a white child over here. I have a, a slave child over here and a, a free child over here. He just says, I have children. And those children are going to be, some of them Jew, and some of them Gentile. And some of them are going to be black, and some of them are going to be white, some of them are going to be free, and some of them are going to be slaves, and some of them are going to be men, and some of them are going to be women. But spiritually, you're children of God. Is there a doctrinal difference or distinction between men and women? And your Bible says yes. What that means is, is we're going to go to our two texts here next. What that means is, God has certain rules commandments teachings doctrines for men and certain rules commandments teachings doctrines for women and they're not always the same and the fact that they're not always the same does not mean God favors one over the other or likes one and hates the other or that the human uh, he pinned or inspired to pin these words hates one over the other or any other nonsense like that it just means that these two are different and they're treated differently because they're different anybody who's a parent has more than one child have you ever had to just look at one child and that work? Please let me know what you're doing 
And over here, you look at a child, it doesn't work. That's my camp. But then if you spank the child, same accomplishment as looking at a child. Well, you're treating them differently. Yes, because they're different. You have to treat them differently because they're different. You have different rules for different kids because different kids are different people. Well, God, in the same kind of principle, has different rules for a man and for a woman. And we'll see that biblically. First, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's notice what the inspired of God, Apostle Paul, tells the gospel preacher Timothy to preach to his congregation and the attitude they should have and so forth and so on. 1 Timothy 2, we're going to begin in verse number 8. 1 Timothy 2.8, I will, Paul says, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and the King James says doubting, but really it just means without a lack of, uh, don't, don't do this without a lack of, of foresight and forethought and putting uh, you know, reason in what you're doing. Don't be hasty is what, really what the word means. So, I will that men, now wait, does that word mean humanity? You know, like one small step for man, Neil Armstrong said. Well, he meant humanity. So does that mean humanity? No, because there's a word in the Greek for humanity. It's anthropos. And there's a word in the Greek for male, and that's a different word. That's this word. If you want the word for humanity, go back earlier. God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the word for humanity. Different word in the Greek. Here, in this verse 8, he says males. And, only, and not only grammatically, but contextually, it's males, because the next verse he's going to talk about females. So, I will that men... Pray, the King James says, everywhere, literally in every place. Wherever you assemble yourselves and it's time for prayer, it is for the men to pray. It doesn't have to be in a building with a steeple, which we don't even have. It doesn't have to be in some specific place where there's a sign out there that says what your name is, North Heights Church of Christ. None of that. It could be at the park. It could be at your home. It could be in this building. It could be anywhere. But if you gather together, I will that men pray and when the men pray, here is your restriction, here is your commandment, your prayer, men, that you're going to be leading must be holy. The hands that you lift up, which is the first century posture of a praying man. If he was writing to the church at North Heights in the year 2023, he would say, I will that the men pray everywhere, clasping holy hands, bowing holy heads, closing holy eyes. But they didn't pray like that back then. They prayed generally with their uh, faces up and their mouths open and their hands raised so when you're praying i pray that your prayer will that your prayer be holy that it be righteous not unrighteous in your prayers that your prayers be without wrath that you don't have hatred in your heart but peace in your in your heart and without doubting that you're not praying frivolously but you're praying with forethought and consideration for the things that you're saying those are the limitations placed on you those are the prohibitions placed on you when you're going to do the praying in like manner also. Same context, you're gathered together. I said something to the men, now I say something to the women. In like manner also, the women should adorn themselves in modest apparel. What does modest apparel look like in the year first century AD? It looks like shamefastness, sobriety, no braided hair, no gold or pearls or any costly array. Is, any, is there any lady in here have braided hair right now? Okay, fine, but you could. Okay, I don't know. Maybe you do and you don't want to raise your hand because you're afraid what's going to happen. It's nothing wrong with having braided hair, but there was something wrong with having braided hair in some circles and some cultures because that was considered immodest. But it's not immodest here. The commandment is modesty. The application there is no braided hair, don't wear any gold or costly array. Well, it's a relative thing. What you're wearing is costly to some. It may be not costly to others. The idea of modesty is unnecessary showiness. That's the meaning 
of immodesty. An immodest person is not necessarily a person wearing uh, a mini skirt and a halter top or something. That's immodest, but it's not immodest because they're showing a lot of skin. It's immodest because they're showing themselves up and off. Versus someone who dresses like a peacock is drawing all attention to themselves. They may be covered head to toe, but if they're literally dressed like a peacock, I mean a person went to the Halloween store and got a peacock costume. And so they have the big, you know, feather plume behind them. It draws your attention. It distracts you from the person leading in the worship. That's immodest. And that's what Paul says, don't dress immodestly. So that is your prohibition. Why doesn't he say anything about you leading and how you're supposed to lead? Because you're not supposed to lead. They're supposed to lead. And they have prohibitions and commandments for their leading, and you have prohibitions and commandments for you following. We're going to flip the genders in a second. We're going to keep showing men and women have commandments and prohibitions as we go through this. But I want you to see the mindset of Paul was, here's a leader, here's how they must lead. Here's someone who's not leading, but they don't just sit there and do whatever they want. They have prohibitions and commandments as well. Doing things that profess godliness. Your outward appearance should tell a story. Not look at me, but rather look at Christ. You're professing godliness. You're doing so with good works. Next, keep going. Verses 11 and 12. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Subjection to whom? To the leader. Who's the leader? Established in verse 8, the men. Whoever the man is who's doing the leading. It's not going to be every man, by the way. Some men aren't qualified to lead either. But whoever the man is that's leading, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I allow not, the old Bible says suffer not, allow. I allow not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over a man, but rather to be in silence. Over being the key modifier. You are not allowed to teach and supplant the authority of the teacher. You are not allowed to lead and supplant the authority over the leader. These are not my rules. That doesn't say First Matthew. It's not written to, to me. It's not written to or by me. It's written by the apostle inspired by God. These words come from the top, the very top. And in that case, the commandment is clear and pure. You learn in silence. You don't lead vocally. Now look at 13 and 14. For Adam, here's the explanation. Not that you deserve one. Not that I am entitled to one. But because this is such a hot topic, I'm thankful I get one. So at least I have a reason to answer the question, why? How come? That's not fair, so tell me why. Well, I'll give you what I can, I can give you what I can. Here's what it says, because Adam was first formed and then Eve. And it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but Eve. She, was, she sinned first. She committed the transgression first. And then we come to the next verse, which people take out of context. And because your Bible translates it in a very terrible way, I'm almost certain your Bible does this, it leads to all kinds of misunderstanding and confusion. My Bible says, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and uh, charity and, and uh, holiness with sobriety. But I'll bet you if I ask for a show of hands, the majority in here, your Bible says something like, but women shall be saved in childbearing. Is that what your Bible says? But women shall be saved in childbearing. Well, guess what? It doesn't say women, and it doesn't say she. All it says, it's three words in the original language. All it says is saved in childbearing. The but is implied. My old Bible says notwithstanding. Yours might say but or and. That's just an implied. And it's implied because it's connecting this verse to the previous verse. What is going on here? Go back to the previous verse where uh, Paul seemingly was really dogging on Eve. He was really putting it all on her. This is all her fault, that horrible Eve. She committed the transgression first. She sinned first in the garden. She gave it to Adam, and Adam sinned second. Because Eve sinned first, she gets the harsher penalty. So now women for all evermore have to be in subjection, and the men are the leaders, and the women are not the leaders, and that's all Eve's fault. So that's it for Eve? She's just, that's it? She's messed up? She's ruined for good? 
Eve was in the transgression, but saved in childbearing. That's the connection. There's no verse breaks. Eve was the guilty of sin, but saved from her sin in childbearing. You see, if you don't understand the context here, this sounds like a really patronizing thing. And a person who doesn't want to follow what the Bible says about women leadership will feel very patronized. Oh, I'm just supposed to carry the babies. I just had to have the babies. All I can do is have the babies. As though that's not a tremendous blessing, by the way. But that's the attitude. I'm just, I'm just here to have the babies. Barefoot, pregnant, in the kitchen. That's all I'm supposed to be. While the men get to do all the leadership. We'll get back to the get to in a second. The men get to be all the leaders and we just have to be pregnant in the kitchen. We get to have the babies. That's not what Paul's even talking about. Paul is saying, yeah, Eve did this. Eve blew it for the rest of you. But Eve got the greatest blessing of all. And she got to be the mother of Jesus through lineage. She bore the Savior of her sin. Eve committed the transgression, but Eve was saved because she bore the child who saved her and all of us too. That, that is a preacher, a writer, Paul, seeing things not through a worldly prism, but through a bigger spiritual perspective. But if you don't care about the spiritual perspective, which is the common denominator in this doctrine, you don't care what the Spirit says, I don't care what the Bible says, it's just what I want. If that's your attitude, then you're not going to see it the way Paul sees it. But Paul's attitude is the bigger picture spiritual perspective. And in that case, it doesn't matter who's leading and who's following on earth. What matters is we're saved. And we're saved as a result of what Eve did. She bore a child who bore a child who bore a child, etc., until we had the Christ. So you can, you can be pessimistic and negative. You can blame Eve for the fact that women can't be preachers, which is what Paul says. Or you can say, women can't be preachers, but a woman bore the Savior. That's worthy of honor. That's Paul's attitude. But if you don't care about that, if you don't really care about salvation, you just want to be angry that you can't get on the stage and preach for 25 minutes, then nothing I'm saying is going to matter anyway. But that's Paul's point. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. A little different situation in Corinthians. The church at Corinth, as you probably know, no love. Lack of love. 1 Corinthians 13 kind of being that apex, the glue that holds the whole book together. The church didn't love each other. The brethren there could not get along. You had all manner of problems come out of that one major issue. They couldn't love each other. One of which was their worship services were a hot mess. If you went into Corinth and you sat there as a visitor and you didn't know Jesus from Judas. You didn't know anything. You just came there as a visitor because you heard. There's this, this great new movement of people from Galilee and Nazareth who are preaching this message. So you go and you sit down. Here's what you would hear. You would hear this guy over here speaking in tongues and no interpreter because the interpreter didn't show up because he's angry at the guy who speaks in tongues. So this guy's over here speaking in tongues that you don't understand. It just sounds like he's just speaking gibberish. And you don't know what he's saying because the tongue speaker didn't show up. And you've got this guy over here who's prophesying, telling you these things that are by miraculous inspiration. But then this other guy over here also can prophesy. And he stands up and starts talking over this guy. Well, he doesn't like being upstaged. So they both start talking. Now you've got two different sermons going on at the same time. And you don't know who you're supposed to listen to. It was a hot mess. So Paul who really should not have had to write any of this. Honestly, if, if we all just loved each other and loved Jesus, the New Testament would be like eight pages long. But because we keep hating and we keep not doing what Jesus says, we don't, we don't just love and give the benefit of the doubt and all the things he writes in 1 Corinthians 13. Because we don't do that, Paul's got to write this big fat letter and regulate, regulate, regulate. So he's got to tell these people who, if they would just love each other, they wouldn't have these problems. Here's what your worship service is supposed to look like. I've got to elucidate every single point for you, point by point, so that you'll stop acting like savages and you'll actually worship God in spirit and in truth. 
And in the context of that, 1 Corinthians 14, 28, he says, if anyone speaks in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three, and the King James says, and that by course. In other words, you can have up to three tongue speakers, but take your turn and let one interpret. So here's tongue speaker A, B, and C. Tongue speaker A is on the stage, B and C are sitting there waiting their turn, and after he speaks in tongues for a little while, we have no idea what he said, it's some language we've never learned. Here comes the interpreter, he gets up. We only need the one, because he's got the gift. Doesn't matter who's saying what, he's got the gift to interpret, so he gets up and he interprets. This should be common sense, but it wasn't because this one guy was speaking and this other guy was speaking and the interpreter didn't want to come because he was angry at the tongue speaker. So it was chaos. So Paul says, all right, you babies, we're going to do it like this. You, 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 you go first, then you get up and then you sit down. And if there is no interpreter, what does it say highlighted there? Shut up, you man. You man, shut up. Put a cork in it. Let him keep silence, keep silence is an old naval term. When there's a hole in your boat and you're going to sink, you must cork the hole. Put a cork in it, is what he says. Put a cork in it, you man, whose job it is to speak in tongues. Because there's no interpreter, it is not gibberish time. No one knows what you're saying, so sit down and shut up. Let him keep silence. You can speak to yourself and to God. Next, let the prophets, these are the ones who get up with the gift of prophecy. Remember, they did not have these they didn't have Bibles. Their Bibles were the men who stood up and preached by the gift of prophecy and whatever letters they had already received thus far, which in some places wasn't much. So let's say they didn't have any words that were written down yet. No letters, no epistles, no, nothing. What do they have? How do they know what, what the doctrine of Christ is? How do they know anything about anything? Are they just in the dark? No. Someone would get up with the gift of prophecy and would preach the word of God to them, which would later be written down for them so they could study in their own sweet time. So here is a church that has prophets to speak, to, to uh, uh, expound the word of God to people. Let it be where they have two or three, and then another judges. We'll get to the judgment in a second. But if anything be revealed to one who's sitting by, you got somebody who's up here speaking, you got the other one who's sitting there, he's one of the two or three other ones, he's waiting his turn. He's speaking, this other guy gets a gift, this other guy gets a prophetic message to him. This first guy, what does it say highlighted? Shut up! Put a cork in it. It's not your turn anymore. You've taken the stage too long. You've been up here for 45 minutes. No guy has a message. We want to hear him now. Shut up, sit down, put a cork in it. That's what he says to that man. I hope you understand why I'm emphasizing it that way. Okay, we're going to flip the gender script in just a second. But it started with them, with the men. You have some prophets over here. He's got a gift. You don't get to say, no, it's my stage, my stage. It ain't your stage. It's not your pulpit. It's Jesus' pulpit. You're just standing in it. For all may prophesy one by one, everybody, take your turn, so that everyone can learn. There's no disorder, disharmony, disunity. You can all be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. How do you know if I'm not teaching the truth? Because you've got a Bible, and you can open it up, and you can say, you said this, but the Bible says that. Well, they didn't have one of these back then. So how can they know if the prophet's telling the truth? Other prophets judge the prophets. The Bible judges the Bible. The Bible determines the Bible is right. Spirits of the prophets, spirits of the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, which is what it looked like when you walked into a Corinthian assembly. Chaos, confusion, a hot mess, y'all. God is not the author of confusion, but of harmony, of synchronicity, of peace. And then he says this, as in all the churches of the saints. And I'm so glad Paul said that because you will have people who are trying to push this today who are saying, you don't need to give me what Paul said to Corinthians. We're not in Corinth. It doesn't apply anymore. 
It's 2,000 years later. It's a totally different culture. It's a totally different time period. It doesn't matter anymore. That was for them. This is not for us. But what Paul says here is a commandment that applies to all churches everywhere. This is universal. This is doctrine. So these guys have certain prohibitions and commandments in terms of their leading. And when they violate them, sit down, shut up, put a cork in it. Let your women sit down, shut up, put a cork in it. See, you don't start with that one. You don't open with that. You open with the one two verses ago because he said it to the men first. So don't give me Paul's a chauvinist. Don't give me Paul hates men, women. There's no. He's an equal opportunist shutter-upper. Let your women keep silence in the churches because it is not permitted. That means there's no wiggle room for them to speak, but they are commanded. That means it's not optional to be under obedience as also says the law. This is not Paul trying to bring the old law into here. This is not Paul trying to bind the old law. This is Paul saying this is the law. I am the apostle. I am the command maker through Jesus Christ's authority. I am laying down the law, and it was also the law back then too. And just because it was also the law back then, and that law has been nullified, does not mean it's nullified now, because it's the law now. Guess what? We used to be under English law, and it was a sin, it was a, a sin, it was a crime to murder under English law. King George III would not want you murdering. Well, then we said, goodbye, King George III, we started our own country. Guess what? It's still wrong to murder. You can't murder. In any law, anywhere. It's the law here, it's the law there, it's the law everywhere. Let your women keep silence in the assemblies. Keep going, 1435. If they will learn anything, if they have a question and they want to shout out and interrupt the preacher, which I think, this is just me. Okay, just put this down for a second. It's just my opinion, what I think he's talking about here. I think it was the wives of the preachers were interrupting their husbands. The preachers were getting, the prophets were getting up and speaking and their wives, as wives sometimes are wont to do, interrupted them and started saying, well, what about this, or what about that? Or well, I think you should say this, or you should mention that. All the things our wives say to us on the way home, right? Not, not in the middle of the assembly. So they were interrupting the middle of the assembly. So that's why I think Paul says, let your women, prophets women, but it's, it's applicable in general, but that's just my opinion. He's talking because of what was happening in the chaos and all this, the women were interrupting. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's just bonus. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. I'll come back to that. Don't worry. Because if you want to run the wrong way with that, you can make it where it sounds like Paul's saying a woman doesn't get to make any kind of a sound at all. She can't talk at all. She can't sing. She can't do anything. He's already told you in the context what he's talking about. He's talking about taking a leadership role of teaching. And he said for who is the teacher and for who is not the teacher. Keep going. Oh, no, this is lightning round. Good. So we have two texts, 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. Lightning round is next. Questions and answers, okay? But before I get to that, I just want you to know the biblical meat of the sermon, the foundation has been laid. All these answers come from those two texts that we read. If you came to here tonight expecting some grand revelation, I don't have that. I have grand revelation. The book is already written. The doctrine's already established. And it's so it, I almost want to laugh, but I don't because it's so sad. Whenever I hear and it's the same thing every time. It's like they read the same playbook. These elderships, these congregations, they all say the same song and dance. It's always, we decided to sit down and study this issue. And we decided after studying it with great care and prayer that it's okay to have women preachers. And it's okay to have women song leaders. And it's okay to have women leading in prayer in the assembly. Because we, we, we study this and we pray this. And I would, I would love to know what they study. But they never say it's always with great study and care. And they're not studying this because this is pretty clear. 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, chapter 14. That's, that's why all I did was just read it to you and make sure the text makes sense. Because once you read it and you see how clear it is, it's ungetaroundable. 
It's ungetoverable. It just is what it is. Now let's talk about it. Again, these are questions I was directly asked, and these are my answers. Does that mean women are not allowed to teach Bible classes? No. Teach like children in Bible class, because Paul didn't say, among other reasons, Paul didn't say children. He said men. So therefore, next question, very logical. Does that mean women can't teach a Christian boy in Bible class? And again, he didn't say Christian. He said men. He didn't say boy. He said men. Now we could go off on a totally different tangent about the age of accountability, and if you want to hold the age of accountability means you're a man before you become a Christian, well then it's a moot point anyway, because it's teaching, it's teaching men. But that's a totally different discussion. We can have that in the, in the lobby uh, with much heated words. Here, just simple says, no, men, not children, not Christian children, or anything like that. Are we just being oppressive? Isn't this just oppression? No, Christianity is not oppressive. Christianity is liberating. Christianity is not oppressive. Christianity is submissive. Well, you have to set your focus, your purview, off of this world and to heaven and to the king of heaven. And once that's your focus, it doesn't matter what your role is or can't be, must be or cannot be, here, down here in this sinful playground that we call earth. Because your purview has to go toward heaven to a heavenly calling. In that sense, Christianity is not oppressing you saying you can't do this or oppressing you saying you have to do that here. Christianity is liberating you from salvation. And the one who liberated you says, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to worship. Do you want to worship God? It is God who saved you. Doesn't that qualify him as worthy of your worship? Okay, if you really want to worship God, you'll do it the way he says to do it. And there'll never be a question of, but I want to do it this way. Or why can't I do it that way? Because you didn't die on the cross. He did. He liberated you. So submit to him. It's not oppressive. Oppression implies a vindictive vendetta uh, picking on somebody. And Christ has commandments for all who serve him. Christianity is liberating of the spirit and submissive to the actions. We have women governors. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, governor of Arkansas. We have women, I think she was the first female governor of Arkansas. We have women governors or women CEOs. There are women prime ministers. Margaret Thatcher back in the 70s was dominating in the UK. We have women, all these women, all these leadership roles. Shouldn't the church just get with the times? Why are we kowtowing to a doctrinal philosophy from the 1950s with some crew-cut, black tie, black jacket, ex-World War II veterans in a cigar-smoky-filled room making all these rules? Why are we having to kowtow to a 1950s philosophy, a 1950s theology that holds women back? First of all, my theology is not 70 years old. The 1950s was 70 years ago. My theology is 2,000 years old. And I am not doing what I'm doing because some World War II veteran said 70 years ago, this is how it should be, women should be in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant, all that other nonsense. I'm doing what I'm doing because the king said this is how it should be. So, no, it's fine to have a woman governor. And if one day there's a, a, a lady who's running for uh, presidency who... I like policy-wise, I will have no qualm with voting for her. But we are not talking about something as small and meaningless as the presidency of the United States. We're talking about preaching and being an elder. We're talking about leadership in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the eternal kingdom. Not someone who's going to be president of a nation that's going to be gone in 100 years anyway. Spoiler alert, probably. We're talking about the eternal kingdom. So yeah, that matters. We should do what the eternal king says. Wouldn't we reach more people by being inclusive? Yep. I am not here to reach people with inclusivity. I'm here to reach people with the gospel. 
and few there be that find it. And if I try to expand that road and widen that road to draw in more people, I will be successful. If I wanted to, if this congregation wanted to, we could open our doors and teach whatever we wanted. We could have all kinds of people. We had 381 this morning. We could have five, 600 people here. Within just a couple of years, just by preaching and teaching whatever made people feel good, we would have a full house of people going to hell. What's the point? No. Yes, it would be more inclusive. No, it would not be very helpful. Aren't you just pushing Paul over Jesus? Did Jesus ever say, no women preachers? Nope. Nope. No, I'm not pushing Paul over Jesus. And if Paul were here, he'd be the first one to say, don't listen to me, listen to the master. But then Paul would say, but the master didn't say this. I said this, and the master told me to say it. I'm going to say that again. Read John 14, 15, and 16. When you read John 14, 15, and 16, here's what a lot of people miss. He's talking to his apostles there. More than anything else, he's talking to his apostles. Pick and choose bits and pieces here and there. You can make application to all of us. But 99% of John 14, 15, and 16 are, are parting notes to his apostles before he goes to die and leaves them in charge. He's leaving a message to his apostles, and he says to them, you guys are going to be in charge, but don't worry. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to give you the word so that you'll know when you can stand up and you can speak and preach, it'll be by the Spirit that I send you. In fact, that text, John 14, 15, and 16, includes the phrase, these things have I spoken to you, being present with you. Whom was he present with? Not me, I wasn't there. Who was in the upper room? His apostles. Paul was an apostle who came later. So when Paul says, I suffer not, I do not allow a woman to teach, that is not Paul making a commandment in light of Jesus not making one. Like putting on himself in the role of Christ and being Jesus. That is Paul being an apostle an ambassador of Jesus, authoritated by Jesus to speak for Jesus. Guess what? Paul said that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sent to Paul by Jesus. So I'm not pushing Paul over Jesus. Did Jesus ever in his ministry say no women preachers? You can maybe find a statement here or there and you can leapfrog a few lily pads and get there eventually, but no, he didn't say that. He didn't have to say that. Paul said it, which is as good as, because he's inspired by the Spirit, sent by Jesus. Singing is teaching, Colossians 3.16. Sing, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Singing is teaching. So does that mean women can't sing? No, women should sing. And every time we're here and women sing, you're teaching me. Singing is teaching. That's indisputable, Colossians 3.16. The same one who said, I don't allow a woman to teach over a man, wrote Colossians 3 and said, singing is teaching. You are commanded to sing. You're a Christian. You should sing. And when you sing, you're teaching me. What you're not doing is teaching over, leading over Bill Whittington or whoever is the song leader. He's leading the singing. You're not leading the singing. You don't have the right to lead the singing. Someone may let you lead the singing, but they're operating on behalf of the devil, not on behalf of Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, there's a song leader. The rest of us teach each other according to his, his leadership. Next one. Are women forbidden from talking in worship? Yes! And so are men. When I'm up here preaching, when the, when the prayer guy is up here leading in the prayer, you're not supposed to talk. It is not talking time. Talk in the car on the way home. Talk in the lobby after worship. It is not time for you to talk. That's rude. It's a sin to be rude. So yes, women should be quiet when the preacher's preaching because the men should be too. You know the preacher. And that's, that's the idea of 1 Corinthians 14. Here are certain people who can do it, but you have to do it one at a time and everybody else, shut up. So yes, Yes, you should not be preaching. You should not be teaching, but you should also not be talking. And neither should I, unless I'm, I'm up here doing it now. But otherwise, you should be quiet. That, that, that doesn't mean 
that you're sinned and condemned, if you lean over and say, can I have a piece of gum? As everyone in this room has done. We've all asked our wives or our husbands for gum, have we not? At one point or another, or a piece of hard candy, Margaret, if you please. Whatever it is, you've asked for something. You've asked for some candy or some gum or for something, and you've gotten it. That's not the same thing. We're, not, we're talking about loud, disruptive, interrupting, being rudeness. That's immodest. That's lewd, crude, and, and unnecessary. So yeah, obviously that's wrong, because it's a sin to be rude. But I thought God doesn't show partiality. Acts 10, 34 is where uh, Peter is standing in the house of Cornelius preaching to the Gentile, would-be Gentile convert. And among other things, he says, my Bible says God is, shows no, is no respecter of persons. Your Bible might even say is, shows no partiality. So someone will take that and run with it a mile, and they'll say, well, you're showing partiality. You're, you're favoring a man over a woman. That's partiality. You can't be partial. Well, let me direct you to the famous legal case of apples versus oranges. These are two very different things. The next verse puts it in context. In what realm is God not showing partiality? In the realm of salvation. Anyone who believes the gospel and goes to him can be saved and have righteousness in him. That's the paraphrase of Acts 10.35. Anybody can go to Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. Male, female, uh, slave, free, black, white, whatever. Jew, Gentile. So this has nothing to do with salvation. Or nothing to do with anything but salvation. It has nothing to do with leadership roles. Let me put it this way. God shows partiality all the time. If you know it, finish the sentence. Jacob have I loved what? Esau have I hated. Jacob have I chosen and favored. Esau have I not chosen and favored. God shows partiality. God chose Abraham over anybody else. God chose Moses over anybody else. God chose Joshua over anybody else. Jesus chose Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew, Bartholomew. Over anybody else, he showed partiality all the time. But when it comes to salvation, there's no partiality. So put the verse in its context, please. Isn't all this just sexism? No, it's not. Sexism would imply that he is attacking this these group of people because of their, in this case, sex. Or racism because of their race. Or classism because of their class. In this case, it is implying that Jesus is holding women back because of their sex. And he's not, that implies a fault with God. That these people are doing this bad thing because they can't get past the color of this person's skin. Or they're doing these bad things because they can't get past the gender of this person, sexuality. But God is not a problem haver. God's perfect. Every step he takes is a step of righteousness. So if God says you can't do this and you can do that, or you must do this and you must not do that, that's not sexism because that implies he's doing something wrong. Everything he does is automatically right. A privilege he has by being God. No, not sexism. What about all the women with a gift for public speaking? These, this woman over here has this amazing, passionate gift for public speaking. You know, I, I, you can hear her at a university classroom, or she, you can hear her as a, as a governor of a state. She has these amazing oratory skills, and she loves God, and she wants to use her gift to serve God. I think that person who has that amazing gift for public speaking should be allowed to get in the pulpit and preach it and use her gift to glorify God. Well, that's great that you think that. But 1 Timothy says she can't. And just because she has an ability to use in other realms does not give her the license to use it here. Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping our gifts? Because if you want to worship your gift, then you'll get in the pulpit and you'll have people praise you for your gift. But that's not biblical. Jesus gave you a gift. Use it. In every realm, you're allowed to use it. You know what else is an amazing gift? Working with computers and numbers and coding and things like that. People who can do things like that have amazing gift. You know what you should not do with that gift? Hack an ATM. Just because you can do a thing does not mean you must do that thing. 
So men get to be the leaders, and women have to be the servants. This is a verbatim quote. All of these were at least paraphrases. This is a verbatim quote. Men get to be leaders. Women have to be servants. First of all, men, whatever role they find themselves in, preacher, elder, whatever, don't get to be leaders. It is a burden to be a leader. It is an act of sacrifice and service to be a leader. Second of all, Christians don't, women don't have to be servants. Women get to be servants, and so do men. It is a privilege to serve. And at the end of all that we have done, for all the gifts that we've been given and used to the best of our ability, for all the sacrifices we've given to Jesus, everything we've ever done in his name, we're told in Luke 10, at the end of it, we will not get one thank you because we are all but unprofitable servants having done that which was our duty to do. But if you have a worldly attitude, if you don't see heaven as your goal, but worldly ambition as your goal, then you will look to leaders of this world and you will see the perks and the privileges and the abuses of power therein. You will look to Washington, D.C., and you will see our leaders. You'll see our leaders abuse their power, take advantage of their position, play the stock market with insider trading and suffer no repercussions. You'll see our leaders pass laws that affect us little people while they are exempt from them, make our health care worse every time they get their fingers in the pot, but they're always exempt from it. You'll see our leaders abuse their power. And a Christian-hearted person would see that and think, that's a shame, that's terrible, that's not worthy of emulating. But a person whose heart is not with Christ will see that and think, that's the racket that I want to be in. That's the game I want to play. I need to get to that level. I want to be up. That's why people keep running for office. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. This ain't the 1800s anymore. People are running for office because that's where the money's made. That's where the power's found. And that ain't biblical. And so people, if you have this attitude of this is what matters here down here, if naked, zealous ambition is all you care about, then yes, you'll have the attitude of I want to be the leader. How come I don't get to be the leader? You'll see elders making decisions, and you'll think, I should get to be an elder. You'll see preachers standing on the stage telling people what to do, but really it's what the Bible says. You'll think, I want to be the one to tell people what to do. I want the power. I want the leadership. i got to be a servant. We all get to be servants because without being a servant of Christ, we're condemned by Christ. Because without him, we are nothing. We get to be servants. Do you know what a leader is? I know all of our elders are not here. I know like Bill, for example, was not feeling good so he couldn't make it tonight. If you are an elder of the North Heights Church of Christ, please stand up. Go ahead, don't be shy. These men are leaders in the sense that they fill a role of leadership appointed to them by divine inspiration. But a leader in the church is a follower at the front of the line. That's what a leader is. This whole big back and forth with this young lady started with, what is, what is your definition of a, of, a, of a leader in religion? The leader in Christianity is a follower. Every one of these men, not a one of them have written a law that's been passed by the Congress of this church. That's not how it works. They do what the book says. Every one of them follow. They are at the front of our line. They are the shepherds of this flock following a shepherd, and they're the flock. Sit down, please. Hey, I don't work for them. I work for Jesus. That's why I can preach the hard sermons and not worry about getting fired. Every one of them, who, or any other eldership, 
they take a heavy burden of responsibility and put it on their shoulders because they will give an account for how they shepherd you, sheep. They don't get to be leaders. They have leadership thrust upon them by divine inspiration according to the qualifications that they meet. Why do you think it's so hard to get honest people to become leaders? Because so many other people hold it up as this powerful position. I think it to be the emperors of the church and good-hearted men who are qualified say, oh, I don't want that. I just want to serve. That's what a leader is, a servant, just at the front of the line, looking back every now and then saying, come on, come on, let's go. We can do it. We can make it. One more step. Let's keep going. That's an elder. And they have the authority when the sheep get out of line to smack them with their cane because if they don't, the big shepherd will smack them with his. That's a leader. Nobody's getting to be anything. I, I consider it a privilege and an honor to be a preacher. I get to be a preacher. Fine, sure. But the power and the authority that comes with preaching the gospel, according to 2 Timothy 4, is a burden. And if I don't do my job, then I'm held accountable. I don't get to be. I have to be. I get to be a servant. The, the very nature of the question is disgusting. Almost done. Two more. So just because Adam was made, Eve was made after Adam, women can't preach. Yeah, that's basically it. That's how the discussion basically ended. She summarized it like that. So because Eve was made second, Eve has to submit. Yeah. I mean, Paul goes into some more nuance in the text we read about Eve sinning first, but it doesn't matter. That's, that's it. Them's the breaks. And then she says, isn't that kind of a flimsy reason? What are you asking me for? I didn't make the law. She looked at me and she said, isn't that a flimsy reason? I don't know. Why don't you take it up with God? He's the one who made the law. Here's the catch. Here's the catch 22. If you really want to take it up with God, you've got to submit to God. You've got to submit to Jesus, be faithful, get to heaven, and then you can ask him someday. But if you do that, once you get there, you won't care. And if that's going to be your attitude then, it should be your attitude now that you don't care. There are certain things I can't do. There are certain things you can't do. There are certain things I must do. And there are certain things you must not do. End of discussion. Now, if you're here this evening, you're not a Christian. I apologize. This was not a sermon for you. There is still great harmony and unity and fellowship in Christianity. But some of us, well, some, some people, don't love this book or want to submit to it. They want to change it to make it look more like the world around them. But God calls us to be transformed, not conformed. To break free of the shackles of the, the normalization of insanity that this world is thrusting on us. And to do things the way Jesus tells us to do them. And we start by becoming a Christian, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose for you, by being buried with him in baptism and rising to live with him forevermore, and then just being faithful. You do that. Just be faithful. You're not going to be perfect. Just be faithful, and heaven will be yours. If we can help you this evening, please let us know how right now as we stand and sing.